Welcome to Context, the podcast from Arizona State University's Construction Technologies class, giving you an inside look into the backgrounds and theories of the subjects covered in this course. Good afternoon, Context. Excited to be with you for another episode as we talk about 3D coordination. Today, I'm joined with uh, Steve Ayer and Kieran helping out with the production. Steve, how are you doing today? Great. Excited to talk about some uh, some BIM for resolving some field issues here. This would be a good uh, good session. Loving it. You know, and and I, I like the way we've, we've stacked the, the content. And I don't mean that as a, as a clapping in the back moment, but it's sincerely to help the students continue to see um, the intentionality, the continuity that we try to weave through this entire class. You know, we just had a fantastic session with Eric Solwick um, sharing about <clears throat> BIM and, and its role in our industry and this whole idea of the information backbone and how um, really, truly, it is the lifeblood for not only the project, but truly the actual project life cycle. And I really appreciated some of the context that he helped provide to the students um, on you know, how different constituents all along the project's chain from, you know, planning all the way through operations where people will need to and um, with the support of BIM or other technological implementation have access to this information backbone um, that's continuously, say hopefully continuously refined to, in, to enable or enhance, I'll just say execution, right? And we can add on whatever needs to go onto the back end of that execution conversation, depending on the task at hand. But anyhow, um, th this is in fact the next step in the journey now, as we continue to prepare for the, the BIM PXPs and, and get the students ready for that process. But, um, you know, again, today, as, as we, as we, as we go through these items, it's all about what's actually happening in the subject of 3d coordination. You know, I think, whether it's through internships or whether it's through um, some of the early sophomore level classes, the students are, are starting to now thankfully get access to this whole idea of 3D coordination, right? Um, but at the same moment, I still think to a degree, the students see it as a concept or a theory, and there's not yet um, a full understanding of the actual application. So really this is, this is where we're talking about um, today and, and as we go into class. And, and as Eric alluded to, you know, this is truly, now hitting a level of ubiquity in our industry. Um, and I think, you know, the students didn't have, didn't have access to this conversation that we were having as a sidebar afterwards. Maybe we can um, illuminate it for the students a little bit, but you shared about a problem that exists in the industry today. Yeah, there's a bunch of us, right? GCs, trade partners, designers, frankly, even some of the owners that are jumping in and participating in this thing called 3D coordination. And there's problems that we are trying to solve and in fact solving but at the same time, there's also some problems that still persist despite our best efforts with this whole thing of 3D coordination. So um, do you mind, Steve, just kind of jumping in and sharing, A, what are some of the original problems that we are, in fact, solving with 3D coordination? Um, and then also, do you mind maybe sharing some of that conversation we had after class about some of the problems that still pers persist despite 3D coordination? Sure. Yeah, so, so yeah, as we transition in the part of the semester where you all as students will have to now actually be the one defining the problems you will solve and the solutions that you believe will solve them, in some ways this is, this is the challenging part, right? So, so Eric's presentation 
was cool, not because the work he presented was just cool. It was cool because it provided value. Every single use, every single use case he presented was not, isn't that cool? We'll end the story there. It was good because we can do studies of where we're going to place the building showing different shadows. We can illustrate how traffic will continue to maintain use of the bridge using 4D. We're going to use um, uh, an automated uh, construction approach for edge forms to speed up construction. This is not cool because it's cool. It's cool because it's valuable, right? So the, the question we're getting at is, so what's the problems we're solving in 3D coordination? 3D coordination is not arguably the most common construction BIM use because it's cool. It's, it's, it's the most common because it's valuable in solving problems. You've heard me, you know, as a class say frequently, the product we build in our industry has never been built before. The team of people who have teamed up to build it have never worked together before. And we expect the output of our work to work the first time we try it, which is kind of crazy compared to most other industries. As it relates to 3D coordination, here we're talking about incorporating mechanical, electrical, plumbing, maybe fire protection, maybe telecom, uh, maybe coordinating it versus the structural, architectural, maybe other elements that you may have, making sure that the different systems that need to coexist in a space don't uh, conflict within that space. Right? This is the situation we're in. And because that team's never worked together before, that means on every project that we work, it's a new project, new concept, we need to partner as a team to figure out, okay, you, Mr. Ms. Telecom person, where are you putting your lines? Where are you putting the electric? Where are you putting the plumbing? Where are you putting fire protection? Where's the mechanical going? Where's the structural? Where's the... And this, this discussion has to occur on every project. Now, part of the question, and this goes into the conversation that you mentioned that we had after class, um, Chase, you know, so the value here of what we're getting at is it is cheaper and it is faster to fail, which is to say identify a conflict in BIM than it is in the field. So, so when I talk about what's the problem we're solving, the problem is when I identify a conflict in the field, it's super expensive because I got to pay people to put something in wrong, pay them to rip out the incorrectly placed thing and pay them again to do it the way they should have done it in the first place because we didn't plan effectively. That's a problem. So that, that's a pretty well-defined problem. The conversation that we're having is when we look at our current process now, um, of 3D coordination, essentially what we're doing is having those different parties, ME and P, and maybe structural, maybe architectural, maybe others um, that may be at play. We have them come together to figure out who is putting their equipment where. And we use BIM as kind of that information backbone you talked about and Eric talked about to say within this um, uh, cons uh, consistent environment, where are we putting these different items here? So I can understand, okay, here's where your equipment goes. But ultimately, the, the decisions made around resolving clashes are still human-based, human right? So the, the which items clash, computer can do that. It's great at that kind of grunt work. But who moves? That's a human decision. So for the student, I mean, think about what happens here. So we've got a team of five people. These are highly paid individuals. They meet one week or one day in a week, and they say, let's put our items together and, and see where we've got problems. And I say, oh, Chase, your mechanical system's here. I thought my plumbing was going to go there. No, you want me to move? Okay, I'll move. Okay, next week we come back. And the next person, you know, Kieran jumps in and says, oh, Steve, your plumbing's now there? I thought my electrical was going to go there. Okay, well, now we got to move again. And the next week, and you can see how this is going to keep going on because we're human, right? And we're going to make um, mistakes. Mistakes can be good, but the faster we can make mistakes and learn from them, the better. So part of what we were discussing is we think 3D coordination is hugely valuable now and for the 
foreseeable future, but it may be possible at some point in the future, some of this decision-making will be automated because in the same way your phone can automate a GPS route based on real-time updates to traffic and tell you not a good route to go on this particular uh, space, it's filled with traffic. Perhaps a BIM will eventually get to the point of saying, hey, not a good uh, area to run your lines. It's probably filled with mechanical ductwork. Um, we're not there yet, but I think this is kind of a good teaser for where we're going um, with the entrepreneurship side of things. Of We hope you all are prepped with a lot of the skills to think about the future. Um, the exact technology we use, whether it's artificial intelligence or machine learning, or all of that is um, uh, kind of when I say secondary. I think understanding the context and how you would evaluate why it will produce value is more important to the uh, long-term success of this um, and sort of identifying how these improvements may help us to be better downstream. So that might be a long-winded way of covering it, but I feel like that kind of hits the um, how we're solving problems find errors cheaper and faster in BIM, but also how we kind of prime them for what we discussed of where are we headed with this? You know, at the moment, it's very human driven from a decision-making standpoint. Does it need to be? Maybe, or maybe we're going to eventually say either we don't have the, the intellectual manpower for that, or it's just way too time intensive, not worth our time to do it. Let's automate it. Well, yeah. And, and to your point, right. And, um, you know, I don't think we'll cover this in class. I think the podcast is maybe a good, good spot to cover it, but to your point on the time intensive nature of this, you know, part of the other reality, frankly, that's um, still a problem today that we haven't yet solved. And there's a reason why that I'll get to in just a second um, is the highly siloed nature within which 3D coordination still occurs, right? So the students may have heard this term of a federated model. Well, you know, who, who does that? Who owns that process? Normally it's the GC, frankly, that owns the process of federating said model. But what's happening is all these other con constituencies or parties are off modeling in their own space, both physically and digitally. And then there's this, to your point, once a week pattern where all the models are essentially imported and federated. And then it's, okay, where are the problems, right? And we go about solving it. And then everyone goes off into their different silos for a week, does all their own deal. And then here we go again, right? So, and the, the simple term, and I won't dive into the details on this because I think we cover it later, the students can go Google it, is something called right of reliance. Um, that's one of the um, prevailing issues as to why we haven't overcome that, that portion of the hurdle yet. Um, the, the other thing I, I do wanna just um, further clarify before we jump onto the next component of this conversation, for the students who don't know what we're talking about with conflict, right? They hear this word conflict. What is a conflict and what does it actually manifest like in the field? I'll just tell a, a quick story from when I was in your shoes as a student. Um, I think this is still something that Dell Webb um, tries to get you all out to go and do. And that's to go out and do site tours of different projects, um, separate of your internships, right? Just get out in the industry and go see things, right? And so um, I'll keep some of the names innocent, but I'll just talk about the project quickly. So when I was in your shoes, um, there was a large convention, convention center project that was happening. And I had the opportunity to go and tour that project a couple of different times. And as I was walking the site um, with the project executive one day, we were cruising down the corridor. And, and as we were walking around and looking, about, looking at different things, we noticed that there was a grease duct that came through the corridor, um, but then it stopped. And then on the other end of the, on the other side of that same corridor, right? So we're probably talking about 10 feet or so wide. The grease duct was there also, but it was at a different elevation, right? That, that was what was happening. And I, I pointed it out and we were talking about what had occurred. Um, 
And again, this is, you know, 2007 timeframe. So BIM was still fairly nascent. This whole idea of 3D coordination was still fairly nascent. Um, and what he said was, well, the mechanical trade partner was coming in and installing their duct work. And, you know, as they were punching through the, the two rooms that were on the other side of the, the side of the corridor, they came through and found out they were different elevations. So they now, instead of their previously spooled piece that was going to connect those two sections, they now have to refab it, re-spool it with an offset to be able to connect said grease duct. And I was like, well, gosh, how in the world did that happen, right? And we had a really good conversation about what had occurred. Well, that's an example of a conflict, right? Another example of a conflict might be that we can talk about the same corridor. Let's just say hypothetically, there was a, um, an, a supply air duct running down the middle of that corridor. And maybe the elevations were the same, but maybe they were gonna intersect through the supply air duct, right? And so they had to introduce an offset to be able to miss the supply air duct. So this idea of conflicts is essentially where systems um, that are not intended to intersect, intersect, right? So that's just a, a little bit of putting a face on it. And again, we'll have a deeper conversation in class, but that's kind of what's going on. All right, so um, let's talk just a hair more about this idea of 3D coordination. We'll talk in, in greater depth. I just wanted to kind of prime you guys, both for the conversation and for the what's next. But when we talk about 3D coordination, you know, I, I shared a couple of the entities that get involved and get um, participating in this process, but not everyone is involved. And to the point of not teaching you what to think, but to teach you about how to think, um, I really appreciated Steve's comment earlier on that this whole idea is about failing fast, failing cheap, learning, and improving the design such that when we go out in the field, it's in fact constructible the first time, right? That's, that's really what this whole process is all about. So therefore, the way that we want you all to think about this is who are those parties that are getting involved in the project that are at risk for this? Because um, again, one other layer to this whole thing is our whole job as construction managers, general constructors, like I am and like you may want to be, it's about managing risk. Frankly, even if you're a trade partner, it's still about managing risk, right? So um, are you bringing people to the table that are either adding risk to the project or who are inherent to the process of reducing risk? Um, a simple example, low-hanging fruit, your painter is probably not someone that's gonna be introducing a significant amount of risk to the project. So they don't need to be involved too much. Um, again, we'll talk about that more in detail, but that's what I want you all to think about. When we think about you know, what is 3D coordination, at the end of the day, it's really a, a risk mitigation um, effort is what we're undertaking. And who do we want to invite to the party? Again, I want you to think about, it's about that risk mitigation. Um, it's about who are the people that are um, kind of most contributory towards that. And again, that's kind of more the how to think as opposed to what to think. Can I suggest so, one, one add? Oh, please go ahead, Steve. As you're thinking about this, think of that example of the duct, right? So I got a duct going through a hallway at two different elevations. That, that was a, a bit of an error there. Think of kind of the trades that interface around it, right? You brought up painters and you said that might be a bad example. But if students haven't thought about this, they might say, well, why is that a bad example? Well, think about the painter, right? If the duct was at the same elevation or different, do, do they have a meaningful change in terms of the productivity or the output or the amount of paint they're supplying or the size of the crew or the type of ladder they bring? Or the... If the answer is kind of no, then even from the risk perspective of their side, like I 100% am with you on we're managing risk on the GC side, but even the risk from their side is pretty low. So think of now who you're going to involve. If you involve someone in a process 
And that person says, yeah, I don't really care if this is successful or not because it doesn't impact me. What's the likelihood they're going to give you good information, right? They, they are disincentivized to care because the output of the discussion doesn't impact them. So I, I like this idea of thinking about risk because that, again, not in telling you what to think, but how to think, that's a good kind of test to run in your mind of who do I want involved? Well, who's got some skin in the game, you know, in the outcome of this? And if you involve someone who doesn't care if it works, you shouldn't expect them to perform very well, right? Yep, yep. No, that's a really good way to put about put it. <clears throat> yep. All right. Um, so the what's next? Um, we're we're gonna have um, a robust conversation in class, you guys. You've probably heard the the phrase, you know, um, inch wide, mile deep, or or um, or you know, a mile wide and inch deep from you know a, a knowledge and expertise perspective. Um, when we're in class together, we're gonna have one of those you know inch wide but mile deep type conversations around three D coordination. Um, and so this what's next is to kind of help prim you for that. And we're going to go through an actual project, um, some of the successes and some of the failures, frankly, of 3D coordination. Um, and we're going to have hopefully a, a pretty robust interactive conversation about um, who was involved, um, what contributed to the success and also what contributed to some of the struggles. So what I want you to think about for your what's next as you wrap up and you prepare for class is to think about an office building tenant improvement type project, right? So. That being said, again, for, for those who may not necessarily know, this, the building's already there, right? All of the infrastructure in the ground is already there. The structure's there, the enclosure's there. Um, you know, all of the necessary things to at least make the building run are there. But in a TI, most times, you're either going to an existing built office and ripping it apart and rebuilding it, or maybe it was what we call a gray shell, um, where essentially it was left as this, you know, vacant space that hasn't you know, had the, the lines colored in, if you will, and you're building out a space to a custom use, right? So that's kind of what's happening in a TI. So I want you to think about an office building TI project and, you know, you're, you're about to um, bid out the subcontracts to, to the trades that are coming to be involved and you're um, incorporating into your bidding documents a, um, a BIM PXP that's spelling out the 3D coordination process and it's going to become actually a contractual deliverable for some of these trades to engage in, to produce a model and engage in the 3D coordination process to enhance the construction outcomes, right? So that's what's happening. So I want you to think about who is getting um, out of the different trade partners, this BIM or 3D coordination exhibit, right? And who's not? Because again, to this whole point we just had about the hallway, um, some of them have risk, they have skin in the game, some of them don't, okay? So start to think about, and when I say who, I'm talking about the disciplines, right? So your painters, your framers, your mechanical, you get where my comments going with this. That's what I want you to think about. Office TI project, bidding out the scopes, which subcontractors or trade partners get the BIM 3D coordination exhibit, which ones don't and why, okay? And as always, we hope this gave you some context.